Our text is 1 Samuel. We're going to not read all of it, but we're going to look at chapter 19 and chapter 20, uh, where we find ourselves in the history of God's people, Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel is in, in place and in view. Uh, his name is Saul, and he is head and shoulders taller and more handsome than anyone in all of Israel. Uh, but that's, uh, that's, that's not really helpful because his heart's not aligned with God. And uh, so all of those all those gifts and abilities uh, are sadly uh, just a reflection of the world's values was it was the, it was the choice of the people. Uh, Saul was the people's choice to be king. And uh, unfortunately, now, uh, you know, the, he's he's kind of you know proving himself to be like the king of all the nations. That's why they wanted him as king, because he was like the king of the other nations. And they didn't ultimately want God as their king. But now what's coming into view is a young warrior, uh, a young uh, musician, a shepherd uh, named David. And David is going to be God's choice uh, for king. Now, the, the way that the, the time that this was written, First Samuel was a book that was recorded and written for God's people many generations later. And they, they are a group of people coming out of exile. And as they return to uh, God's promised land, they need to be reminded that what they should value and what they should uh, desire is a king who is not like Saul, but who is like David. That's part of the argument. And if you want to commend to uh, you know, the people of God who would be best to be king, you would want the endorsement of some people who are surrounded. The king, and of course, that's how God uh, orchestrates it. But Saul can't see it. Saul has already been told that he has lost the kingdom. He's still reigning, and he will for for several years. But he has lost. The spirit of God has left. He has already been told that God has rejected him because he rejected the word of God. And uh, and now we see that David is coming and rising up uh, in prominence. And even though he gives great victory to, to Saul and to God's people, Saul continues to stand uh, largely opposed to him. He just cannot swallow it. Even as he strikes down all of these enemies, the Philistines. Uh, you know, who were opposed to Saul and the people of God, Saul cannot appreciate it. And along the way, the narrator helps us with the endorsements of, of people who are near. And what I mean by that is that the, the two people who stand out, uh, even in our account that we'll read today, are the, the king's uh, son and daughter. King Saul's own family uh, recognizes and appreciates David. We see that uh, Michael or uh, Michal, the daughter, sometimes she's known as, the daughter of King Saul, she loves David. And they are given in marriage, part of the reward, of course, for 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 slaughtering, uh, you know, uh, the the great Philistine Goliath. And then we see also that he has a son. He has a son, Jonathan, the oldest son, the natural heir to the throne of Israel. Uh, Saul's oldest son also loves and appreciates uh, David. Jonathan is his name, and he would have been in his 40s. He would have been the rightful heir. But we had this imagery that we read last week where he you know, he abdicates the throne, that he takes off his royal robe and even hands some of his weaponry over to uh, David to show his covenant uh, bond and love and to show that he knows that his father is is crooked and the kingdom is to go to, to David. He knows that David is uh, a man like him after God's own heart. And they forge this deep uh, love that runs very, very deep, their devotion and allegiance to one another, as we'll see again and we're reminded of in the text. So I know you just sat down, but uh, let's uh, stand to, together in deference to uh, the honor of God's word. I know this is going to be a long uh, portion of reading, so uh, hang with me. Hear this. This is God's word. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David 
Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his own hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he eluded Saul, so that that the spear struck into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, well, he's sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair on its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing and head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers that they also prophesied, and Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself, and this is where it gets interesting, went to Ramah and came to the great well that's at Seketh and asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he also went and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all the night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he should seek my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. It goes on. They have an agreement for how they're going to uh, let David escape. And they're going to 
devise a plan to, to hide him that he can make an escape. And they have a, a way of communicating by way of archery uh, what the, the intentions of King Saul is. And then we pick back up. If you look a little further down at verse 30 of chapter uh, 20. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Why? Because he found out the, the hoax. He found out the plan. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, did I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, that is David, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with the little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapon to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face on the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we look to you right now and we ask that you uh, would forgive us and you would forge us. Would you forgive us, Lord, our minds and our understanding, our finite and our will, to be honest, is fickle. Sometimes it's even bent against you. So would you please use this time, forge us through your word and your spirit that we might be faithful and sound in the battle that you have for us, for Christ's sake. Amen. This this past week, I was uh, driving in the car and um, I was talking to one of our children about uh, the Lord, about God, about the reality of God. And though we cannot see God, we know that he is real And to take the old line of uh, Billy Graham, who says, you know, it's like seeing the wind. You cannot see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And I know many times I have seen in a profound and pointed way the effects of God's power in people's lives. And it's a beautiful, transformative power. And that came to mind in a fresh way because I saw a clip from uh, an interview some 40 plus years ago. On, on television with uh, a woman by the name of Corey Tim Boom. Some of you may know who she is. Uh, she became a famous author, but that's not where she began. She began in the Netherlands. Uh, she was uh, a, a watchmaker and a businesswoman, and she was living in the Netherlands uh, with her, uh, her sister and her father. And uh, she had a heart for people who had uh, mental disabilities. Um, she also, uh, she and her family had a, a great sympathy during World War II for the people, uh, the, the plight of the Jews. 
And so their family devised a way in the, in the, in the, the home above their, their watchmaking shop to, uh, to hold people, to, to, to shelter people. So they gave away their money and they gave away uh, you know, the shelter and, and, uh, and, and food to people in need. But they would house some of these Jews uh, that they could escape and that they could be secure. And they built into the walls a, a ventilation system and a hiding place. In fact, that's the name of her book. She has a biography. It's called The Hiding Place. And they have a place in the walls that she records. There were six uh, places for people, for Jews to be uh, to be sheltered and to be hidden. Unfortunately, sadly enough, over time, well, over the over time, they saved some upwards of approximately 800 people from having to be sent away to concentration camps and to undoubtedly face uh, suffering and death. Well, in 1944, a Dutch informant uh, told of what their the, the Boom families. Uh, you know, rescue mission was in their hiding place, and they came to the house, and uh, she was taken away. The whole family was taken away to prison. She spent three or four months in solitary confinement, and then 11 months altogether, uh, she was in prison and sent to Germany to a concentration camp herself. It was there that she, with her sister, they were able to smuggle in a very small Bible somehow, and they led worship services, and they shared the gospel with many people and won them to faith in Christ. And she tells the stories of shame and pain and suffering that she experienced in the concentration camps. Her sister uh, ended up, now they're in their 50s at this point, she and her sister both, and her sister ended up falling ill and died in the concentration camp. There were some very, very dark days. But God, she would record, did not let her grow bitter. She loved God. God showed his love to her and ministered to her in a way of comfort by way of her angels and the means of grace that was very pointed to her. She has this great quote. She says, when a train comes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. It's hard, isn't it, though, to trust the engineer? It's hard to sit still. Sometimes it's especially hard to sit still when we, we, we perceive the, the, the providence of God as very bitter and sour in our circumstance, in our affliction, in our suffering, in the disappointments, even the small disappointments of any given day that frustrate and bewilder us. We can be tempted to bitterness or we have a temptation towards a profound anxiety and fear that creeps in and up and it presents us when we are presented with a certain set of circumstances and undoubtedly a whole set of uncertainties on the horizon. Another great quote from Corey Tim Boom, she says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And she knew God very well. She was very much rooted in the word of God. What do we know of God? What, what, is, what is revealed here concerning the character of God and really the character of human nature in this account? Two themes that we see here that stand out to me are, one, I listed them in the order, jealous violence. And then the other one is sovereign deliverance. It's very obvious that Saul refuses in his jealousy to embrace God's plan. To embrace God's chosen king who God is rising up. Yes, Saul is jealous. And we talked about how last week the insidious nature of jealousy, that creepy sin that none of us really wants to admit goes on in our hearts and minds. True. Envy, 
It shows up in the human heart. David, we talked about last week, is not a neutral figure. Most people love him, but Saul in particular hates him. He sees him as a rival. He is jealous. David's not a neutral figure, and neither is David's great-great-grandson, the greater king, Jesus. We talked about how you either enthrone him, Jesus, the greater David, or you reject him and kill him. It's, it's, not an, it's, not, it's an either or. It's, there's no third way. We respond to Jesus and his claims and his authority, and we either surrender or we don't. He either is king or he's not. And that's where, of course, the resurrection is a game changer if, in fact, it is true. And we said last week that if you want any indicator, if you want a hint or a clue as to whether or not you are enthroning Jesus with all of his authority and control in your life and worshiping him, then you'll just look at the areas and places where you are angry or anxious or jealous. Because inevitably, in those areas and avenues, it will show up and reveal what in fact is in our hearts. And for Saul, what's in his his heart and his ambition and desire is his own reputation. He wanted control. He wanted the praise of others. And this is this is just a window. There, there are many windows in uh, God's word into human nature. And this is one of those where we look into the life of Saul and we see how jealousy, just like any other sin, is ultimately destroying, self-defeating, and altogether deadly. And that's just for us from our perspective. Of course, it's an offense to God. And, and Saul has gotten so accustomed of crossing over God's law and forgetting and neglecting and insisting upon my kingdom come and my will be done instead of yours, God, that he is enslaved. If you entertain sin, if you feed it, it inevitably escalates. It inevitably carries out. The anger and the fear has Saul now It owns him. He's losing his mind. And the jealousy has already been known to be volatile in his relationships in the past. But now it's gotten even worse. It resurfaces in chapter 19, uh, verse 10, when he tries again. You see there, uh, one more time, he tries to to, uh, spear David. Then can you even imagine that jealousy, it even burns up a love of of a father towards his son? Because if you 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 dig into chapter 20, uh, verse 33, what does it say? Then he tried to hurl his spear at him too. That is Jonathan. That's what Jonathan knew. He's, going to, he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to kill his own son. That's how much jealousy and sin has deceived him and affected him. There's a particular phrase, though, I want us to just kind of drill down on and consider for a moment in all of this. And that's in chapter 20, verse 30. Look at it again with me. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And that's when he he spews out these perverse things about his own mother and insults his own son. Of course, that's no surprise. Where the mouth speaks, it comes out of the heart. But there's also something here in that very word, in that turn of phrase, kindled. His anger was kindled, as if to say, look, the combustion and the spark was already there. And, And so it was not Jonathan's perceived betrayal it was not jonathan's uh, you know allegiances to to david that created this it revealed it does that make sense there's things that are going on in king saul's dark heart that are revealed because of these things jealousy 
fear and anger. These are something that we all know and we all experience. We're tempted to say, of course I would be that way. Of course I would be angry angry, and, and just stewing in bitterness. Look at all of those people in my life. Look at these circumstances. That's why I'm anxious. You would be jealous too. If you could just see, understand my circumstances and the people in my life. We seldom, we love to look outside when we're explaining and justifying and trying to give answer to the way we are and what we do. We like to look outside. We're very fast. We're very keen. But we're very slow and less perceptive to look inward and say, why is it that I am thinking and acting and behaving this way? As a young pastor uh, in my 20s, um, I was ill-prepared. That's pretty obvious uh, for a lot of reasons. I I just, you know, there were things that I would encounter in my 20s. And uh, I thought I I was so proud. I was the youngest, you know, minister. I was the youngest ordained pastor in all of the PCA. Oh, this is so great. And I'm so smart. And I, I started to bump into all kinds of things that I had no clue. I was just... I was blown away. I was humbled. I I had no answer. I remember a young woman, Kelly, she came to me and she talked about how she wanted to read something about anger. And I said, oh, I've got some stuff to read. And I was going. And then I realized that what she was describing was an anger that she had towards God. And she went on to describe what she faced in watching her father and his chronic illness and the, the suffering that he'd endured and how she was angry at God. And I was speechless. I was shocked. And I didn't know what to say. And, and years later, I've seen a lot of people, many, many people, who are angry at God, doubting him. Saul is angry with others. Don't get that wrong, that's for sure. But ultimately, Saul is angry with God because his heart, he keeps saying, why? He doesn't, he doesn't say why, actually. That's, that's the problem. It's natural for us to say, why, God? It's, it's okay even for us. It's, it, would to be, it would be expected, even in the verbiage of King David later in the Psalter, when he sings songs and he, and he, he provides questions in earnest prayer before the Lord, his hand is open. Why? But Saul takes it a step further because he goes to a fist and he says, how? How dare you? My kingdom, my will be done. This is what I need. This is what I want. And as a result, Saul will suffer because his doubts with God then turn into judgments about God and his plan. He doesn't wait on the Lord. He's not in a dark tunnel. He is in a dark tunnel, but he's ready to jump off. He's ready to raise his fist. He's ready to abandon it all. And in fact, he does. And he will suffer and he will be destroyed. Ultimately, David, all along this whole narrative, as we're going to see unfold in chapters ahead, is threatened and threatened and threatened. He's in danger. But is he? The reason I highlight that, because it just feels like, doesn't it, when you, when even even where we are to, up until this point, and what we'll definitely see in the weeks ahead, it's like it's like scenes out of Mission Impossible, right? You're like, what are you doing, David? Why did you go back into, uh, you know, the king's palace? Didn't you know? I mean, Tom Cruise, why are you going right into the heart 
of the CIA. I mean, this just does not make sense, right? And you see these harrowing, you know, moments. It's like David is escaping, and it's all from David's perspective. It's like he's escaping by the, you know, the hair of his chinny chin chin. And what I'm trying to say is for a moment, and it's natural for us to look at it that way. Even David himself thinks of it that way. What does he say at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 4? He says, he says to, to Jonathan, there is just one step between me and death. That's what he says. But this is God's story. And we should be looking at it through the lens and through the vantage point of the Almighty. Because there is not a single moment that David is not safe and sound. And there's a reason for that. And it speaks not only to the might and mercy of God, but a greater plan that he has. So let's move on. There's this other theme of God's sovereign deliverance, which is very much in view. God shows us many things of his sovereign plan, his complete authority, the fact that he controls every single detail of David's life. Frankly, God, let me remind you in case you forgot, and I, I know I forgot at some point this week, that God is in control of every single last particle, molecule in all of the universe. He was involved with David's life. He is involved with your life and in my life to this very day. Our very lives. God brings deliverance to David through various means. And they stand out in this story, right? Some of them are just rather ordinary. They're just, you know, it's bad aim. <laughs> right? Some of you some of you and I have been spared because of bad aim. You know, ill intentions, but clumsy people. Sometimes we're saved, right? Look at the natural agency. Sometimes we're saved because of the intercession and the advocacy of a friend. That's Jonathan. And there are ways, undoubtedly, that God preserves the lives of people because of the obedience and the sacrifice of loving, godly people. That's Corey Ten Boom's story. Is it not? And then, of course, there's the, the love of his wife, this, this sickness hoax that they plot. To save him and the, the figure in the bed with goat hair. By the way, you know, they, they come to her and then you notice that, that turn of phrase when her father says, why, why did you deceive me, my own daughter? And, he, and she lied. I don't know if you caught that, but she said, well, David said he was going to kill me otherwise, so I had to. But in God's providence, they lived on the edge of the city wall. And so that window that he was able to escape out of didn't lead into harm's way, but out, to the, out of the city. Part of God's plan. There's all these twists and turns that are part of God's work. And some of them are the very obvious and apparent human agencies by which God directs. But sometimes there's just this undeniable intervention that is so direct that happens by way of God. In our, in our story, in this story, but in this story in particular, I love it. All of the servants... All, of the, all of the, the warriors of Saul are sent to kill David at the end of the close of chapter 19. Did you catch this? Yes. What is going on? It says they were prophesying, which that verb in the Hebrew can mean a, a number of things. We don't exactly know what they were doing, but it was something akin to praying or proclaiming or preaching or singing and worshiping God. And every one of them has every intention to go there and follow the king's order to go and kill David. And they, they, they stop. 
They fall down. They begin to start praising God, maybe against their own volition and will. I'm sure it was. It definitely was for Saul. Don't you see the irony of God? Don't, don't you think God has a way, whenever he scripts a story, to just show us that he is, he is, he is totally willing to be ironic? That he would have this man, Saul, march on in there and say, it's almost as if he says the third time, if you want a job done, sometimes you just got to what? Go and do it yourself. And he heads on out there to, to, uh, to meet up with Samuel the, the priest and to take out David. And what happens? This man who had exalted himself above God's chosen and he falls down and he's naked and he's, he's singing praises to Yahweh. That's hilarious. That is ironic. But that's the way God does it sometimes. And he gets up the next day and I'm sure he's like, am I hung over? I mean, what just happened? What am I doing? What is going on? And he still cannot see it. He cannot see that every time I try to go against God's plan, it backfires. You've wondered that yourself, too. Now, that didn't work out, but I'll try it again. We doubt God's way. We doubt God's wisdom. We question his plan. We see it laid out. We see his, his invitation. We see what obedience looks like. And we doubt him. And we, we raise sometimes even our fist up against him. And he, he, he has a way of just frustrating that. And even mercifully, by the way. I, I don't mean this in some type of destructive way. Even if he were to discipline us, and indeed he does, it's only because what? He loves his children. His sons and daughters. Here's the point. God's plan rules. David is never truly in in danger. God knows full well how to deliver not only David, but to deliver you. God has a sovereign plan to protect and to preserve David so that through him we may not only have pictures and types of a great king, but a descendant who would be his greater son, King David, that's what we'll sing. We'll, we'll sing of it. We'll read of it come December. Some of you are already counting down to that holiday. True. Lowe's is. I don't know if you've seen the decorations. And you'll read about it. Someone will stand right over here and we'll read about it again at the start of the Gospel of Matthew, of the genealogy, the descendants of the son of Jesse, King David, and who is listed amongst them? Jesus of Nazareth. God has complete control over your life, and King Jesus has complete victory over every single one of your enemies. And whoever you think your enemy is, it's probably not what it really is. Here are two realities that we face in this fallen world. Our our greatest enemies are sin and Satan. And, of course, the world in its own influence is part of that enemy force as well. Where the voice of our sin and the God of this age is resounding. But it's sin and Satan. And sometimes we feel the temptation of the enemy to entertain sin. Yes, even to be jealous or to be to be bitter. It may be a number of, of, of ways that you're tempted to cope with that, to try to navigate that. Maybe you feel as if you have disappointments and threats in your life. Maybe you have heartache and you have suffering. Maybe you had it this week or maybe you're, you're dreading it tomorrow morning as you head to work. Maybe it is bitterness towards God. Satan wants us to believe 
in our temptation that we have no hope and we have no power. And at the very same time, Satan would love for us to believe as well in our failures, and all of you and I have them, that the enemy wants us to believe in those failures. Again, we have no hope and we have no power. In both instances, he is wrong. Why? Two things, okay? One of them is a covenant promise. Uh, The other one is a covenant friend. David has this covenant promise that he will have the kingdom and he will reign and so will his descendants. He has this promise and he, 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 he is called to cherish those things even in the face of great threats. And you've had threats. You and I both have experienced threats this week. We've experienced intense, perhaps, a temptation. And I want to tell you what this one promise is. There are many, but here's just one of them. Okay? Inspired of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a promise for you. Remember I told you. When you feel like it's inevitable that I will fall in sin. Here's your promise. The second thing I would say is we have a covenant friend. David has the covenant friendship here that we are told of Jonathan. It's a, it's a beautiful friendship. It's a friendship that, it, that runs so deep. It's illustrative of the fact that blood is not thicker than water. And the truth of the wisdom of God's word when it says in Proverbs 28... A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Jonathan is that man. He is willing to defy his father and to love the Lord's anointed, his dear friend, David. Jonathan is an advocate and and a mediator for David. Do you have a friend and a mediator? If you repent of your sin... And turn to him. Yes, you do. His name is Jesus. And we said it earlier. A friend of sinners. He actually loves and think about this. Because we understand the appreciation in part between Jonathan and David. But here is a picture in this, this, this glorious story. Even as we know we are unworthy. That we actually have in Jesus one who understands. And yet he loves us as his enemies. And he even dies that he could make us friends. Now, what I just said is probably not new news to you, but it is good news. And you're like me, I know, and you need to be reminded of that good news. Trust him. Follow him. Let him rule and reign in your hearts. And by the way, if you proudly, foolishly oppose him, you will suffer and you will struggle. I'm warning you. But if you trust him, you will find life. Forsake sin, love your, love your Savior, and do not listen to the enemy. And when you fail, here's another great quote for you, Corey Timboon. I've said it before because it's one of my favorites. In Christ, God, I don't know how you feel right now about your sin and your, your, your mistakes, but here's what I want to say in Christ. Corey Timboon says, God takes our sins past present and future and dumps them into the sea and then he puts up a sign and it says this no fishing allowed thanks be to god 
Let's pray. Father, I've prayed this multiple times in past weeks. Would you guide us away from sin and self? And would you please have mercy, forgive us of our jealousy, our anxiety, our love of self and our love of the world. Give us, Lord, boldness to confront sin, to kill it and to crown you, Jesus. Lord, we trust you that you will give us what we need this week as we encounter the enemies of sin and the lies of our enemy, Satan. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to love you with our whole self. We want to love our neighbor as ourself. And that will bring you praise and that will bring you glory. And that will be for your good purpose in our lives and people around us. So guide us, Lord. Give us compassion for people who are struggling. Give us love for people, even our enemies. Lord, give us words to say, even divine appointments, to share the hope this week that we have with people who do not yet know you. Lord, I pray you be with people in our congregation who are struggling with sickness, even chronic ones. Lord, for people who find themselves perplexed and bewildered, even tempted towards bitterness. Lord, I pray you would change this, that you would soften their hearts, that you would warm them with your love and your spirit. Lord, I pray for people this week who are struggling in work struggling in relationships. You know the wisdom that they need to navigate it, wisdom that is from above. Lord, I pray today for, with great thanks for the children of our church. I thank you, Lord, for the children that you are bringing into our church. I pray for the mothers, the couples in this church that are expecting children. Lord, I pray especially for the Johnsons this week as they go to deliver their fourth baby. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for these gifts. Help us to be focused on your love and mercy this week, we pray. Even now, as you taught your disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done.